everyone, welcome back to Tudor Talk Time. We hope you enjoyed last week's episode, which was yeah. which was on oh Cat Ashley. Cat Ashley, that was it. Cat Ashley, and there we go. we've gone we've gone digital. So if Phoebe sounds really far away, sorry, that is just bear with me. That is just I'm Google. quiet at the best of times. <laughs> yeah, that just Google meets. And it also does mean that Katie is in Thailand. Um, so good for her. <laughs> there was a lack in communication this week, probably on my yeah. part. But Katie will be back next week. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this week we're going to be talking about Lady Catherine Grey. Yay! <laughs> So, should I kick us off then? Yeah, go on. So, Catherine Grey was the daughter of Henry Grey and Lady Frances Brandon, or Frances Grey. And I'd say her biggest claim to fame, and that what people know her from, is that she is the younger sister of Lady Jane Grey. Um, also, another thing that we didn't mention in the Lady Jane Grey episode is her father was the great-great-grandson of Elizabeth Woodville. I think quite often we only really mention how Frances, her mother, was close to the throne. But from both sides, there was a lot of power, genetically. Um, so she was born in 1540. Uh and by 1547, at only seven years old, Catherine came to hold an official place in the English succession. So, to set the scene, Henry VIII was still on the throne. Um, and just before his death, he changed the succession once more. The succession act that he'd passed in 1554 allowed him to do this, uh, which put the descendants of his younger sister Mary above those of his older sister Margaret. So, uh, Catherine went from being eighth in line to the throne to fourth at only seven years old. So, to give a little premise to the rest of her life, she is a very prominent figure, even if we don't know that much about her. So, it is important to note that these changes may or may not have been done by Henry himself. This is, like, in the year of his death. He was bedridden, sick, just on the brink of death is the only real way to put it. And would he have been in the right mindset to change his succession in such a minor way, or like, not minor, but just a real detail-oriented way? It's debatable, um, especially with all the factionalism at court. Mm-hmm. Anything to say on the factionalism at court, Laura? There was some bad factionalism <laughs> Um, yeah, so there were two factions, there was a Catholic and a Protestant faction, and because Henry's religious policies are so ambiguous, it makes the kind of factionalism even stronger, because there is, like, there's no security, and there is a possibility for both factions to have power, so they're both gonna go full out. So true, Laura. In 1547, after Henry's death, Edward VI takes the throne, and as I said before, Catherine is rocketed up to fourth in line. And she continued her studies nonetheless. I mean, she was only seven years old. I don't think she was that concerned with the politics of court. Um, But she separated her time between Bradgate and Dorset House in London. 
similarly to how Jane did. Around this time as well, Jane, as we mentioned in our episode on her, becomes a ward of Thomas Seymour and Catherine Parr. So this leaves Catherine Grey as the eldest daughter. Catherine also began studying Greek under the tutorship of Thomas Harding. We could bear in mind that, unlike Jane, Catherine did not adore the studies. She... Her heart did not lie in that place. Um, In March 1549, so two years later, Jane did come back to live at home for good after the fall of Thomas Seymour. So Catherine was reunited with her beloved sister. But in 1549, if you know anything about the reign of Edward VI, you'll know it was a pretty problematic year. We had both the Western Prayer Book Rebellion and Ketz Rebellion. And... To be honest, the Greys, being a Protestant family, were not too bothered by these rebellions. They, if anything, were a little bit more supportive of them. Um, But in the conflict, Catherine's uncle, Sir Henry Willoughby, was killed, which led to her spending a lot more time with her orphaned cousins. Uh, And her eldest cousin uh, of Henry Willoughby actually came to live with the family for a while. And the picture I really want to paint is a sort of tumultuous childhood for Catherine, with family members being murdered and brought to her at all the same time. And it helps to paint the picture of what Catherine's going to become later. Not a person super adoring, not somebody that's super adoring of the rules and regulations, as they failed her quite a lot. On the other hand, actually, the Greys were pretty friendly with Mary, which is weird considering Mary staunchly Catholic and they are staunchly Protestant. Well, I don't know if you can be staunchly Protestant uh, or reformist, rather, I should say. And they even visited her in November 1549. Just also as a little overview, which you might have already gathered from our Lady Jane Grey episode, but the Grey parents were very, very ambitious. And you can imagine that would have made a difficult environment to grow up in for their three girls, particularly for Jane, but likely also for Catherine, because they wanted success and their way of gaining it was through their children. And furthermore, this continued. And now if we skip ahead a little bit through Edward's reign, we reach the 1553 device for the succession. Edward VI is getting sicker and sicker, and it's become apparent that he needs a succession. He's not a big fan of his sister Mary. She's a Catholic. We don't like Catholics. Mm, Not a Catholic. Mm, Not a Catholic. And so he goes, well, we can't have Mary. And then if you can't have Mary, you can't have Elizabeth. And then you've got Mary, Queen of Scots. But what's the problem with Mary, Queen of Scots? She's Scottish. And a Catholic. (laughs) So we can't have Mary, Queen of Scots on the throne. So that leaves none other than the children of Francis Grey. And at first, Edward's like, okay, any, any sons that Francis Grey has? And then followed by any sons that Lady Jane Grey has and any sons that Catherine has etc etc and however then edward's health begins to deteriorate rather rapidly but not before there is a triple wedding 
A triple wedding. A triple wedding. In 1553, Catherine was married to Henry Herbert, the son of the Earl of Pembroke, in a pretty much a rush to produce heirs. So Catherine was only 12 at the time, uh, which was the age of consent, but even then that was considered too young for consummation. Nevertheless, she did go to live with Henry Herbert, and they grew quite fond of each other, actually. Okay, well, so Edward dies... Um... And then Jane has to take over. Now, so Catherine becomes a sister of the Queen for nine days. And then the infamous tale that Jane is then overthrown by Mary. But after this scandal, the Earl of Pembroke decides that he's not too happy for his son to be married to a grey child anymore. And he forces an annulment between of the marriage between the two and this is kind of upsetting because this is one of the only child marriages I've seen where they actually seem to be pretty fond of each other from the get-go and even to the extent where Catherine says that she's consummated the marriage they both are like you've consummated you can't annul the marriage because they are really happy with each other so it's a bit sad um but I understand where he's coming from. You know, if I'd married into a family where both the father and the eldest sister had just been beheaded for treason, I wouldn't be too happy marrying into them. So, yeah, they were quite fond of each other, but the marriage was annulled, and much to Catherine and Henry's despair. And unfortunately, the luck would continue to get worse. We then yeah, have she doesn't Wyatt's have much rebellion. Luck in terms of marriage. No, but we also then have the Wyatt's Rebellion, which in 1554, resulted in the fates of Jane and her father being sealed. They are condemned to death. And one of Jane's last actions before she is executed is to send a gift of her Greek New Testament with a message written on blank leaves to Catherine. And I would really recommend giving the letter a read if you ever have the time, because it is really moving, it's really beautiful, and she is very loving towards Catherine, and it really shows their relationship and how they loved each other and it wasn't I think we often forget that although your family unit was political it was still a family and you still loved your siblings even though I think we see a lot of killing them um you know with the Seymours and everything there was lots of love I think you what you really see in it as well is kind of like big sister relationship yeah because is it i'm pretty sure it's that one if not she wrote a separate letter where she's also like look after mary like you're the eldest sister now you know kind of thing and it's like Mm. you do kind of see those like thing it's like i know it's almost like they're not like so different because you know they got like the whole like big sister it's got lots of big sister energy for all the slander that we give bloody mary and i'm no bloody mary lover she does forgive the greys relatively quickly at least catherine and mary and francis she grants especially them back. The yeah especially considering she's burning some like next door <laughs> she treats them pretty well i mean she's like you are my blood i guess yeah so, she forgives yeah, them whatever. a little bit and in july 1554 so mere months after she's beheaded their father and sister she grants mary and catherine positions at court i was reading an article 
by a man called William Shutt, who will obviously reference in the comments, but I just thought he had a very interesting quote about how to describe her. He said, the fame of Lady Catherine did not derive from her virtues. She was a very ordinary sort of person. Her beauty, she was plain. All her accomplishments, there were none. So he's not being oh. very kind to her. But I think it shows that maybe in comparison to Jane, who did love learning and she liked all of that, that Catherine was not as outwardly impressive, perhaps. But that, that's, yeah. that's an opinion, that's an opinion. Um, the thing with Catherine is she's just very like she's like the female stereotype of the time like the reason that he's probably like there's not much to say about her is because like you know she didn't didn't like go out of her way to like I don't know to make herself like known and stuff like that because I also think she was aware that that would make her a threat and kind of put a target on yeah. her back like she was just kind of laid back she was like ooh like don't want this to go the wrong way while Jane was sort of obsessed with being a martyr, Catherine just was quite happy to live her life at court and have romance and that sort of excitement. It didn't attract her in the way it did Jane. And I think we need, in order to recognise women in history, we need them to be something new and something spectacular. When in reality, well, I know I'm not spectacular or anything Phoebe, you particularly are outstanding. Yeah, shut up, Phoebe. <laughs> If it was a man, just by being associated with somebody prominent, you would get pretty good rep. So Catherine was 18 when Elizabeth, her cousin, took the throne of England. And this meant she's already had a big boost in her pop, in her kind of profile. This is, this is like a massive peak. And some, some historians... We're not going to get religious. Some historians have said that this could have slightly gone to her head. We don't really know. But it's certainly an increase in her profile, in her kind of, in her threatenability. (laughs) She was the most likely successor to Elizabeth, basically, because Elizabeth had no children, we know, during the first years of Elizabeth's reign. And... There were a lot of people who disputed her claims, so especially people who supported people like Mary Stuart, but it's because she was the granddaughter of Henry VIII's sister, Mary, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's how she... So she does have the strongest hereditary claim and right, now that Jane's dead. And so for the next two and a half years, she is the centre of many plots. And this can be for kind of two reasons. It could either be because she was quite trustworthy she she was i mean she wasn't like stupid or anything she wasn't going to make stupid decisions or it could be because she was very easily manipulated and that meant that anyone who kind of wanted i think especially because elizabeth's religious policies are meant to be quite kind of middle way they're not meant to be super extreme because they're meant to let everyone do what Mm. they want to an extent so more extreme protestants would have preferred to have Catherine on the throne because she would have pushed for Protestantism. Um, although her views were still flexible, but she would have been more extreme than Elizabeth. I think the thing is that, like, the influences in Catherine's life are more strongly Protestant, and I'm not trying to discredit, like, Catherine's intelligence or anything, but I just don't... I just don't think that kind of stuff massively bothered her. Do you know what I mean? Because she doesn't seem, like, incredibly fascinated by politics and stuff. Well... 
she, yeah, she really didn't care much for politics. And actually, it was said that she was easily flattered by foreign powers. So should she have ever taken the throne? I don't know how well it would have gone. But um, she wouldn't have been the one. Let's be realistic. If she had taken the throne, she wouldn't really have been the one like ruling. She'd been like a puppet. I yeah. Think. But I mean, Elizabeth was pretty forgiving towards Catherine. Um, even though these plots were treasonous. And it's only in 1561 where she actually gets herself into some proper trouble. So. I think the, the reason Elizabeth's forgiving with her at first is because I think Elizabeth kind of like thinks, like sees him as on a level, level playing field. Like what does Catherine bring to the table that I don't like? She's got Protestant views, you know, like she's single. She hasn't got children. Like she hasn't got anything that the people want in their queen that like Elizabeth doesn't have, if that makes sense. But then in summer of 1561, this is when she properly upsets Elizabeth and this earns herself imprisonment slash house arrest for the last seven years of her life. So what happened? It was discovered that she was pregnant and had been secretly married to Edward Seymour, who was the Earl of Hertford and the son of the Lord Protector Somerset during Edward's reign. So Catherine had married Seymour without Elizabeth's permission. And this is a huge thing. You need to have the monarch's permission if you're two kind of very powerful families that could be a threat. So this was this was hugely threatening for Elizabeth because she has a direct, like the next person in line to the throne marrying someone, yeah, who was descended from a Lord Protector. So this is a really powerful marriage. He's also like cousin of the previous king. But not through the royal side, so that was Exactly, but it's like, there's still a connection, you know? I mean, we saw Henry VII take the throne, Phoebes. It doesn't have to be, like, that strong. Mm. But I think the stronger connection is Catherine's to the throne. But the thing, that they, they married in secret because they they knew Elizabeth would never sign off with it. Like, they didn't get... As in, it appears that they didn't get married in, like, a political way. And it was in secret because Elizabeth would have never said yes to it, but, like, with good reason. It's like, you can see it from both sides quite well. Yeah. And then the huge thing is that she was pregnant, and that meant she could potentially be having a son, which is the thing that Elizabeth hated the most, because everyone's on Elizabeth about, you need a son, you need an heir, and then the person next in line to her could potentially be having a son, and that's going to look... I mean, to all the ministers in her cabinet that are constantly bracing her for the fact that she hasn't got children, that's... Catherine's going to say... And that she hasn't gotten married, you know? It's like, they're like, tick-tock. Well, Catherine's going to suddenly look like a much better option because she's got a child, which is, like, let's be honest, at this time you needed an heir because it just provides stability in the reign. But Catherine was very quickly sent to the tower for this. And Seymour is summoned home because he was stationed in France serving for some stuff. But he's also sent to the Tower for this very quickly. Um, The marriage was kind of declared null by a commission that had been specifically appointed, um, which was led by the Archbishop of Canterbury. But I find it just quite funny. Um, There were only two people who had witnessed their marriage and it was the priest who officiated it and he had, you know, he disappeared and the other witness, which... I thought it was Jane Seymour. No, Jane Jane Seymour is in in her husband's sister, not like Jane Seymour. Yeah. It was another, yet another Jane Seymour. But because of this, them declaring the marriage kind of unofficial, Catherine's first son is born a bastard and that means he is excluded from the succession. 
And Thomas, who was also born in the tower in 1563, was also declared a bastard. So basically, the story behind that, she has two sons, because Catherine and Edward had been meeting in secret in the tower. As soon as he is born, um, she never again sees her husband, and Elizabeth separates them and keeps them both under house arrest and won't let them ever see each other again. Very sad. And then also, just for more context, in 1562, at the end of 1562, Elizabeth takes ill with smallpox. And this was a really, really rough time for her reign because it wasn't really known whether she was going to recover or not. And at this point, Catherine, I think Catherine has both of her sons and is a really great option in the throne. And there's talk of putting her on the throne. She has two, like, healthy sons young sons who she can just be a regent for but they can be put on the throne and I think that when Elizabeth does actually get better when she finds out about this possibility and how it's spoken about you can understand why she'd get concerned and perhaps imprison Catherine to keep herself safe and then actually in August 1563 She's taken out of the tower because of the plague. And she's basically just from then, from then on, she's moved from house to house at country homes and guarded really strongly, obviously, by the people in those houses. And this puts her into a really kind of deep, depressive state. Um, she begs Elizabeth for forgiveness so many times. And it's actually even suggested that she had anorexia from this depression and that kind of led to her death. But ultimately, she died of consumption, apparently, or anorexia, depending on who you ask, in 1568. And this happened while she was in the custody of Sir Owen Hopton at Yoxford in Suffolk. Just before she died, actually, she had arranged to have three of her rings sent over to Edward. And so this was her betrothal ring, her wedding ring, and a memento ring engra- engraved with the words, While I loved yours. So, I don't... I don't know, maybe a last profession of love. And actually, 40 years after her death, um, Catherine and Edward's marriage was finally declared legal, which is just quite a nice thing. A little bit of... It's just so sad. She never got to see it. She didn't get to see her babies grow up. Like, I don't know, the whole story just makes you really sad. But this was a very (laughs) significant death. Um, Because she was, like, the last hope of this more extreme Protestant succession. There were a lot of people at her deathbed when it happened. And one of them actually wrote a really, really long report, which is very, very long. But I've taken the best bits of it. Um, Thank you, babe. The best bit. It is, it is a hefty tag. It's not even that long, but I, I couldn't read out the whole thing. Anyway, <laughs> I also, it's also written in like that old English that so took me a long time to like figure out what they're actually trying to say. But I got a bit of it down. So, all the night she continued in prayer, in saying of psalms and hearing them read of other and sometimes saying them after others, and as soon as one psalm was ended, she would call for another to be said. And many times she herself would rehearse the prayers appointed for the visitation of the sick, and five or six times in the same night, she said the prayer appointed to be said at the hour of death. So, we can get from that. She knows she's dying, and she wants to go off in a way that is going to impress God. She, You can tell from this, she's actually quite a pious person. She very much believes that saying these psalms is going to save her soul. Um, I think she's also, there's a little bit of hope that, you know, in the, she'll just have to wait for her kids and her husband in the next life and they'll join her if she's like, if God, you know, puts her, her in his good books. But then in this next book, 
but we can really see the kind of depressive state she was in. So people went to her and they said, Madam, be of good comfort. With God help, you shall live and do well many years. So they're basically saying to her, don't worry, you're going to live, you're going to be fine. And she answers, no, no, no life in this world, but in the world to come, I hope to live forever. For here is nothing but care and misery and there is life everlasting. So she is not very happy, but she believes she will be happy in the next life, which, you know, kind of nice. I was just going to say, I think that the reports of Catherine and her like religiousness at the end of her life mirror quite a lot the letter that Jane writes to her saying that you can't put your full trust in this world, that you have to basically aim higher. And then at around six or seven in the morning, she asked the people around her to get Sir Owen Hopton to go to her bedside. And he's the one who's taking care of her at the moment. Um, he asked her how she is. She goes, even now, going towards God, Sir Owen, as fast as I can. And I pray you and all the rest that be about me to bear witness with me that I die a true Christian and that I believe and that I believe to be saved by the death of Christ and that I trust I am one of those he shed his most precious blood for. And I ask God and the world forgiveness and I forgive all the world. And lastly, welcome death. And embracing herself with her arms and lifting up her eyes and hands towards heaven, knocking often on her breast, she broke out and said, O oh Lord, for thy many mercies blot out of the book all my sins lord into thy hands i commit my soul lord jesus receive my spirit so putting yeah. down her own eyes with her own hands she she yelled she yelled up her meek soul unto god at nine o'clock in the morning nine o'clock very reasonable hour yeah she was a considerate girl but I really That's think true. the main thing we should be taking from those reports <laughs> is her piety, but also the fact that she was very aware of the fact that she was going to die. And she can almost tell the moment it's happening. In fact, I think she could tell the moment it was going to happen, which is either very well written literature or a very, very sad woman. It's a different kind of a different kind of um, sad that we normally see. It doesn't end in some brutal execution or war. It just ends in heartbreak. Um, thank you for yeah. listening. We hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next week on Tuesday Talk Time. <laughs>